Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to to Quarter Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Sir. All right. This this week has had some comebacks. We'll talk about the All-Stars, but not the All-Stars that everybody might be thinking of. Trade season continues to heat up. Talk about some hot teams with too many pieces and finish with everybody's favorite segment, What's the Verdict, where I will ask you a series of questions and you will respond whether the person or situation is innocent or guilty. But first, what do you think about this week? Who had the best impact overall? So this week was a really interesting matchup, I think, for the Grizzlies, which we'll get into a little bit later, just because they've had to play some pretty tough teams in the last couple of games. And I think a lot of people were seeing them winning games, going on a winning streak and kind of just dismissing it as, all right, they're kind of beating um, lesser teams. It must be that they're not playing as good of competition, but we've seen them pick up some pretty impressive victories against the Nets and the Lakers. Not that the Lakers are anything to really brag about too much these days, but we've seen definitely John Morant playing out of his mind, seemingly taking um, another step. And I think that it's also been a really good game, the one that they had against the Warriors, to see him go against Stephen Curry, um, the point guard that probably many people would consider to be the best point guard and come up with a 29.5 rebound, eight assist performance, outplay Stephen Curry and gets the win against what many people consider to be the favorites for the title. So I think that um, these were matchups that were good barometers for how good the team could possibly be. Yeah. And so for me, the the big performances this week, uh, I think as an overall team, huge what the Nets did to the Bulls last night. I think that these two teams, obviously with the Heat, and the Bucks are the top teams in the East, East looking stronger this year. And the Nets with a full team completely decimated a Bulls team that you and I have been very high on this year, obviously leading the East overall in the standings. But after the game, they asked James Harden about it. And James Harden is like, this is what we're capable of. We've only played 15 games together last season and two games together this season. So that's crazy to think about that these guys have been together for a season and a half and have only played about 17 or 18 games together. And when they do play all at the same time, they didn't need a big performance out of Kyrie Irving, who's still getting his feet under him. But James Harden goes off for 25 and 16 assists to Kevin Durant, 27 points, nine assists. And both him and James Harden are both uh, plus minus of 23 and 24 respectively. So it's, crazy what this team is able to do um it's just they need all their pieces there at the same time yeah no and then they also have the possibility of potentially getting Kyrie Irving back for every game if they could figure something out with how they want to deal with paying for the fine as it turns out the stipulation for him not being able to play because of the vaccine is more so a finable offense more than it is a ban um Apparently, it's just a $5,000 per game fine if they decide to play him anyway, regardless. So, um, I mean, at that price point, I think that probably Kyrie Irving himself would probably be willing to pay that just to make a point. So who knows? Maybe they'll actually get him back 
and they can start to form some semblance of chemistry. But I think another thing that we have to touch on before we move on is the play of Joel Embiid, who recently has maybe been playing some of the best basketball of his career. He has actually scored 31 points in the last five consecutive games. Literally 31 points in all five. And um, if I'm looking at it, the last time that he scored below 30 points was on the 23rd of December. He scored 30 points or better every game since. And the game before that, he had 41. So in the month of January, like I said, he's played five games, 31 in all of them. He's averaging 31 points per game. He's averaging 1.4 blocks per game, 9.2 rebounds, surprisingly six assists per game in the month of January. And he's shooting pretty well from the field at 54%. Um, Joel Embiid single-handedly has brought the 76ers back to relevancy in the standings with the 76ers now in fifth place, leapfrogging a Cleveland Cavaliers team that is probably a pretty good uh, regular season team, probably a little too inexperienced to be a serious threat in the playoffs, but um, they've beat a lot of the best teams in the league so far. And for the 76ers to jump them now in the standings, I think that just speaks volumes to what Embiid has been doing without Simmons in the lineup down an all-star so um, I think that his play of late if he keeps it up can maybe even elevate him into the MVP conversation not to say that he's going to win it or anything but you're going to have to give him the consideration if he keeps it up well and this comes on the heels of the news that Ben Simmons nothing has changed and he doesn't want to come back to the the team still so he's going to have to continue this performance and continue to carry the team like this Um, but It'll, it'll be interesting to see uh, what continues there. I do want to make note, though, of a couple of stories this week. Uh, first off, Paul George may be out for the rest of the season, which would also squash any potential comeback of Kawhi this season. In addition to that, Damian Lillard might be out six to eight weeks with abdominal uh, surgery. And you also have Russ, who's playing terribly right now. Ben Simmons does not want to play. The whole Kyrie situation's in flux. Which of those players in those situations do you think are most detrimental to their team? Oof. I mean, if we're talking about just pure detriment, then I guess we maybe have to look at Russell Westbrook and the Lakers. And I'm sorry to say that because the other teams, obviously, having a player that is playing many people would say that that in and of itself would make you a bigger contribution than having a guy like Ben Simmons who is not playing at all. But the question was the biggest detriment. And given the fact that the 76ers have recently been able to win without Ben Simmons, I think that they've shown that they've been able to survive um, his negative impact a lot better than the Lakers have been, whether been able to weather Um, Russell Westbrook's impact, who is actually leading to a lot of losses on the court. If you look at the Lakers' win percentage against teams above 500, it's abysmally low. It seems that the Lakers, when they do get a win or go on any kind of streak, it's against teams that are below 500. And recently, with Russell Westbrook um, finishing three consecutive games, each of those games finishing with less than 10 points, shooting less than 30% from the field, It's almost like when you look at a a bad relationship, you got to ask yourself, are you better off being alone or are you better off having somebody, but somebody that's toxic and bad for you? 
I would say that I agree with my philosophy on relationships that you're better off being alone than being in a bad relationship. So I think that having Russell Westbrook really hurts because it's, it's just an elephant in the room. Like there's, there's that funny meme going around of Russell Westbrook looking over his shoulder, um, looking at LeBron who's seemingly analyzing the stat sheet and Russell Westbrook looks worried. Like if Russell is going to basically, um, if LeBron's going to notice how badly he did and he's going to be in trouble of some kind, it's what he looked like. But the thing is, this is a nightly story. Like we're having the Kings recently in the game that they just played, put a graphic on their jumbotron of Russell Westbrook and an iceberg. And they put a title saying ice cold player of the game. And every time he missed a field goal, they played ice cold. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that it becomes an elephant in the room because now on top of winning games, there's also that internal struggle of, I have to validate myself. I need to prove to people that I don't suck. And there's that we have to try to make Russell feel comfortable. We have to find a way to, you know, make his skill set work, even though clearly it's not a good fit. And then there's the issue of as, as a tradable asset, I think that he's harder to move than any of the other pieces because yeah, it sucks that Damian Lillard is injured, but we can reasonably expect that he's going to come back at some point. And if not this season, he still is someone that has a lot of value because of what he can represent to your team when he finally does return to health. So you could get pieces for him. Um, ben Simmons, you can get something back for him. Maybe not as much as the 76ers want to get back, but he's, he's somebody that some teams would be willing to roll the dice on and see. Um, he's been shown to be an elite player on the defensive end, at least. But Russell Westbrook isn't even giving you elite defense at this point. And his contract is gigantic. He makes more money than anyone on the Lakers, actually. And he's producing at a level where every single game, it's, it's like a question, what is he going to do today? Is he going to have, you know, close to double-digit turnovers? Is he going to shoot below 30% from the field? At this point, you're counting your blessings if you get Russell Westbrook games where he gives you 15 points on 45% and five or fewer turnovers. If you're getting that, you're happy with him these days. So I'd have to say it's probably him that's the biggest detriment to his team right now. Yeah, you just said that about him making more money than everybody in the Lakers, which one, shocks me. But two, uh, you could put together a roster of Anthony Davis, Malik Monk, DeAndre Jordan, Dwight Howard, Wayne Ellington, Avery Bradley, Kent Bazemore, Trevor Reza, and Carmelo Anthony, and it would still be less costly than one Russell Westbrook. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, at this point, as a general manager, you got you to gotta be pulling your hair out. Like, there's no way you can move that contract. I just don't see it. Like, even the worst run teams in the league couldn't be convinced to take that on because realistically, first of all, there's the, the aspect of the math. What are you going to do, trade half your team? Like, you're going to have to give up enough players to, to meet that number. So... I mean, what are you going to do? Trade half your team to meet that value? And you know you're not going to get like an all-star caliber player at this point from Westbrook. I mean, yes, he's a great talent. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. It's just that he's right now, the way that the league is, he's a liability. People have him figured out. And I think mentally, um, he's just not quite the same. Like before when he was a very effective player and he was an MVP, he could consistently knock down a mid-range jumper. He had a very, very consistent mid-range pull-up that he loved to use where 
it was kind of a la Stephen Curry where you get a fast break and if he sees that everyone collapses into the paint, he'd just pull up and raise up and splash it in transition. Obviously not from three, but he'd get that little 15-footer to go at a pretty high degree and he was a free throw shooter that was above 80%. And then randomly over the years, he just got less and less efficient to the point where now he's, he's a really big liability on, on the offensive end because he, he can really only do a few things. And his decision-making in the fourth quarter is really, it leaves a lot to be desired because he has supreme confidence in himself, but it blinds him sometimes of just passing to a teammate who's got a better play. So it's just, I mean, at this point, what team would trade for him? Well, I think it would be full circle if they traded him back to the Oklahoma City Thunder for the Thunder to give half their team over to the Lakers so that they cut everybody, and then they would uh, give the Thunder another first-round draft pick. So the Thunder take on the contract that they put into play and uh, continue to stockpile draft picks with them getting their uh, franchise guy back. I guess. The issue with that is I think that the Thunder actually likes some of their young pieces. And given how little money those young pieces make, they'd have to basically include all of them. So yeah, No, I, I actually looked it up. They, I, I think it would actually be impossible for the Thunder to bring back Russell Westbrook. Derek Favors makes the most money on that team right now at $9.7 million. And after that, it's – I don't even think their entire roster makes $40 million. Yeah. I mean, good luck, Lakers. Um, I, I mean, I really do feel sorry for Russ. He does give it his best effort, but it does seem like as much as they keep hoping for a breakthrough moment, I heard them saying that they're drawing inspiration from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you know, that they had a similar story arc where they started out not being the most competitive team. And then in the second half, they really just started catching fire and they were able to ride that hot wave all the way to a Super Bowl championship. And I hear LeBron, you know, saying the same thing, like I'm a older star. People have countered me out. My team is a bunch of new pieces that I've never played. You know, we have underperformed to this point, but we're going to be like Brady. We're going to turn it on in the second half and we're going to make some noise and we're going to win this thing just like the Bucks. But it, I don't think it's going to be like the Bucks. I think that this is who they are. I mean, with the Bucks, at least you could see the potential for what they could be once the chemistry was there. I just don't even see a path for this team to be an elite team right now. So, I mean, but I've been saying this all year long before they even have a first game with Westbrook, this would be something that would happen. So, I mean, it's just, it's all just coming to fruition. Yeah. Well, moving on, we have some new and fresh faces as well as some old ghosts of the past who have been signed to all of these hardship exception, 10 day contracts. So, of all of the people who have been signed, who have you been most impressed with? There have actually been a couple of surprises, so it's hard to pick, but I've got to give it to make them dance Lance. Lance Stevenson, everyone thought that he was done. He's kind of regarded as like a crazy figure, kind of like a J.R. Smith type of guy who can randomly have an all-star level game one game and then he can do some really head scratching things the next, but you know, it's hard to deny the fact that he, when he's on, 
he really can potentially change the game for you. And if you think about it, he's only 31 years old. He's, he's not washed up by any means. He's younger than a lot of uh, current NBA stars that, you know, are still considered to be in their prime. So it's not like the guy is washed up. He just kind of fell off and like disappeared for a little bit. But since coming back, he's had a really amazing start. He put up 30 points against the Brooklyn Nets um, on 63% shooting from the field, 50% from three. Also had five assists to go with it. Game before that, 16 points, 14 assists, four steals to go with it, 58% from the field. And I think that that's all the Pacers needed to see to convert his contract um, to a guaranteed contract for the rest of the year because he's now guaranteed the rest of the year. And in the games that he's been playing, he's been getting around 22 minutes per game, shooting close to 50% from the field, playing solid defense, playmaking surprisingly really well, giving you 6.2 assists per game. Um, I think that he's actually been a really good pickup, really underrated guy. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, he seemingly came out of nowhere, uh, given that he's been away from the league for a bit now. And I think similar thing with Greg Monroe. Obviously, he wasn't let go by the Timberwolves and is now in the Wizards, but still is playing serviceable minutes and is doing well when he is playing. He's obviously not going to give you a double-double every night, but I think that for people who have been gone for the league for so many years to come back and have that type of impact – is definitely promising um and so i would i would say those two guys are the people who i've been most impressed with uh obviously it had a performance and then you look at kyle guy on the miami heat who has gotten his second 10 day just given the amount of injuries and people who have been out and he's been playing a lot of minutes uh for the heat and been serviceable there so there are a few guys around the league who are making the most out of this opportunity and wouldn't be surprised if they get some two-way contracts or just continued looks throughout the year and potentially beyond based off their play. Yeah, definitely glad to see these guys getting opportunities. Happy to see Lance Stevenson um, playing his air guitar after he hits a three. I miss seeing that. And I'm still keeping my fingers crossed that after seeing a guy like Lance Stevenson, who, I mean, everyone can agree he's got some potential. Like every now and then he puts some moves on that they look like maybe an all-star could have done that move but they have like this kind of mental, you never know what you're going to get from them type of volatility. After seeing that, I hope that we can get some Michael Beasley action because he's kind of in the same mold of a Lance Stevenson. He's a guy that definitely can put on some moves every now and then that you're like, wow, like this guy's definitely talented, but mentally you never know what he's going to bring. So I hope that these guys, now that they've had some time to be away from the game, have had some time to sort out whatever has maybe caused so much mental volatility with their um, effort and performance on a game-to-game basis, but would really love to see Michael Beasley, former number two pick, come back and get an opportunity in the league too. Yep. Talk about some other guys who aren't on 10-day contracts but are making their returns to their team. So we talked about it last week of Clay and Kyrie making their expected returns. Now having the opportunity to play and see them play, which one do you think had a better debut? And of those two, which one do you think will get to 30 points first? I think that um, even though from a statistical standpoint, Kyrie Irving had a nicer debut, if you're just looking at the numbers, I got to give Klay Thompson 
the better debut just because it just meant something different. And clearly everyone can agree with that because apparently this return of Clay Thompson was like the most viewed television event for the NBA in like the last 10 years or something like that. And it even got higher ratings than all of the last um, several finals. So it was a really big moment, clearly. I think that the reason why you could say it was the better debut is just because with Kyrie Irving, he is coming back from, I guess, a self-imposed ban. He's not really coming back from an injury or some kind of adversity that, you know, was physically debilitating. It was more so like just policies holding him out. So when he came back, he didn't really seem like he missed a beat too much. He looked good out there, um, casually dropping 20 points in his return. I mean, obviously, you can't ask for much more. But with Klay Thompson, he's coming back from some catastrophic injuries. He had one comeback from an injury. As soon as he comes back, doesn't even get to play a first game, has another season-ending injury. Um, and it was just mentally, that's really, really hard to recover from. So, and then from a physical standpoint, there's the question of, is this guy going to be the same player that he used to be? There's that question of, can he trust his leg? Is he going to have the same jump shot, the same athleticism? And it was really nice to see that even though he only, you know, put up 17 points on seven of 18 shooting, he had a couple of plays there where he looked like the old clay. He had a play where he was able to accelerate down the lane and he was able to put down a poster jam in traffic, which I think was the, the highlight play of the game that got everybody on their feet. I think that it was just what it meant to see that Clay Thompson felt the confidence to put the weight and force on that leg, elevate and go down in traffic and yam it shows that there's still that Clay that we saw two years ago in there. And, you know, he shot three of eight from three. He had some timely moments. I think it meant a lot to see him. No offense to Kyrie Irving. He probably had the better overall game. But for context, I think that Clay Thompson had the more impressive return. And for the first to get 30, these guys are both, um, you know, very ignitable players. But I'm still going to go with Clay Thompson just based on the simple fact that Clay Thompson is a guy who is going to play all the games, not just half of them. So he's going to get more opportunities to get to 30. And he also is the kind of player that, I think that he's more streaky than Kyrie Irving is just because he lives and feasts primarily on three-point baskets. If he gets hot from three, we see what he can do in a very short amount of time, just launching three-pointers. He doesn't even have to take very many dribbles. He just catches, shoot, boom, three. So all he needs is one game for him to be feeling himself a little bit and have an ignitable game from three-point range to get to that margin. Whereas Kyrie Irving, I think, is someone that He's just not going to be asked to take as many shots. Um, he has James Harden and Kevin Durant there. And also he relies on hitting tougher shots. So I think we may have to wait a little bit longer to see him get to 30. Yeah. And I, I think too, with Kevin Durant and James Harden, you have two people who on any night are going to command the ball and are going to put up the 20 plus or 30 plus points that they did in the more recent games. And obviously they're a bigger part of the game plan right now for the Nets than uh, Kyrie is. But in terms of the Golden State Warriors, I think that while they've had impressive performances by Poole and 
uh, others on the team, they really have lacked the offensive prowess that Clay brings compared to just the overall team effort that they've needed. So I think Clay's just going to have more opportunities and more of a game plan that is suited for him to put up 30 than Kyrie necessarily is. Yeah, I definitely agree. I wouldn't be surprised to see that Clay Thompson, at least over the next couple of games, will have a higher average field goal attempt than Kyrie Irving does. I think that for Clay, he's going into a situation where he's sliding back into a very familiar and established role that he knows exactly what that role is. He's played it for many years. It's pretty much a seamless transition, whereas Kyrie Irving is returning to a team that has found a groove with him being out all year. And now they're trying to reintegrate him into the game plan and try to kind of figure something out with new pieces and new players and new roles that really haven't been established. You haven't really had too many games of Kevin Durant, James Harden and Kyrie Irving all playing together. So there's just more of a feeling out process. So I think that, like you said, the the game plan will be better suited for Clay to hit the ground running faster than Kyrie will. Agree. All right. So trade season continues to heat up. We were going to have two trades to discuss today, but the bull bull trade to the Pistons got scrapped because of a failed physical by bull bull. So bull bull will not be going to the Pistons in exchange for Rodney Magruder as previously reported, but we did get a new one today. Cam Reddish is finally off of the Hawks and has been traded to the New York Knicks for Kevin Knox and a first-round pick. Who do you think wins this trade, the Hawks or the Knicks? Well, I mean, this is a trade that I think is really interesting. I think that I probably would have to give the win to the Hawks just because you're going to get a first-round pick out of this. I'm not really high on Kevin Knox, but you're getting a first-round pick from the Knicks. The Knicks are going to be a bad team. You can probably count on that pick being a pretty solid pick. And as far as Cam Reddish goes, I'm just not sold on him being a first-round pick type talent right now. I know that he came in with a lot of hype. He was a player that obviously has a lot of potential with physical tools that he has, obviously six foot eight plus wingspan for his height, plus athleticism, 217 pounds. When you look at him, he looks like what your prototypical small forward would look like in the NBA, but he has not been able to put it together. There were also concerns at Kentucky about the same thing. It's not like, uh, or at Duke, I'm sorry, about the same thing. It's not like he's a guy that had a lot of success at Duke and now is struggling to find it in the NBA. Remember when he was at Duke, he was not you know, a consistent player there either. And that was a big concern there too. RJ Barrett was pretty consistent for that team. Obviously um, he was the more polished of the two perimeter forwards that they had, but it seems like Cam Reddish is just continuing the same things that he did when he was over at Duke, where he would give you little glimpses and moments and flashes of being a player that can maybe do something special on a, you know, random play to play basis. But when you're looking at his overall contribution over the course of the whole game, he doesn't seem to be mentally locked in. He doesn't seem to give the necessary effort, especially not on defense, to justify any of the potential that he has on that end of the floor. And um, offensively, it seems that he just hasn't really figured it out. 
This is his third season now. You would expect him in his third season to have shown, I think, more improvement than what he has. This is a player that in his first year averaged 10 points per game. He's now averaging in his third year 11.9 points per game. It's not really like he's taken a leap of any kind. As a matter of fact, if you look at his numbers, they're pretty much consistent the whole way through for everything, except for the fact that he's rebounding the ball less, two fewer rebounds now, and is averaging a career low in rebounds. So, I mean, I just don't see um, what the Knicks were really thinking with this. I don't really know what they're going to do with him. They're going to just reunite the same Duke situation where they had with Cam Reddish and R.J. Barrett. Duke wasn't able to make that really work fully. I mean, they didn't seem comfortable playing together there. And now they're going to recreate it in New York, a team that already doesn't have it figured out right now. I think that this is where Cam Reddish's career goes to die. Oh, well, I completely disagree, which I don't think happens often. But I think that Cam Reddish went to the coach who, if anybody's going to extract the potential out of him, I think it's Tibbs. And I think that the situation in Atlanta was that Cam was not given any sort of opportunity to grow there because they just had a lot of talent that got in the way of him playing any meaningful minutes or having any game plan that went through him. And I think you're, you've seen that with Atlanta this year again, which I felt was the, uh, the reason why they started off so poorly last year and then got better towards the end of the year. It was not because of elevated play by Trey Young or by Gallinari, it was because they started to use John Collins more. And I think this year his usage is down again, and they have not utilized him in the right way. And I think that they didn't utilize Cam Reddish in the right way. So I think Cam Reddish now goes into a situation where there is a little bit of familiarity there with RJ Barrett. But I think that when you survey players or look at players talking about when they're playing in high school or college, who was the hardest person that they played against? It was always Cam Reddish. And so I think that he just hasn't lived up to his potential because they haven't utilized him in the right way. And I think that Tibbs does have a chance to polish uh, this, this diamond up and see if he can get a diamond out of the rough um, and bring Cam up to his full potential. I mean, you got to hope so. You gave him a first-round pick for this guy. He obviously has the physical tools. I mean, he looks the part. It's just – it's really hard to say what is his deal because it's maddening. His jump shot looks nice. His, his dribbling looks nice. His finishing around the rim, as far as if you look at everything before the moment that the ball is supposed to go into the basket – Everything before that part looks nice too, but he just misses. It's, it's not like, I don't know, I, I have to disagree on the not giving the opportunity thing. They gave him 26 minutes per game his rookie year, 28 minutes per game after that. That's basically a starter's workload. And he responded by giving them no extra production and actually increasing his volume, but lowering his shooting percentages when they did that. So it was no surprise that this season, when they dropped his minutes some to 23 minutes a game, you know, he was going to obviously see a reduction in his role because when they increased his role and they gave him a bigger role, he produced at a less efficient clip. So, I mean, I really hope that you're right because he is a player that it would be fun to see um, what he could be because from a 
from a just pure talent standpoint, you could probably argue that he has a higher potential than RJ Barrett does. He has better physical tools, but mentally he just doesn't show you any kind of consistency or effort. So I guess we'll have to see what uh, Tom Thibodeau can do with him. But I guess if you're the Knicks, you got to try something because the season definitely has not gone the way that they've thought. And I guess they have really no one that they can count on to consistently defend on the perimeter. And at least Cam Riddish brings the potential to give you someone that can do that. Yeah, we'll have to see how it pans out. But talk about a team that is peaking in the right way. The Grizzlies are peaking two episodes after we talk about well, is, is Ja the problem? And then last week we talked about, actually, Ja is, is crushing it right now. Uh, they're on a league best and franchise record 10-game winning streak. So do you think that this team is truly a contender? Honestly, at this point, you do have to take them seriously. They're doing all this, and they don't even have Dylan Brooks playing right now. I think that a big part of it, too, is the emergence of Desmond Bain who is still not really getting a whole lot of credit from anybody, but Desmond Bain is a really good basketball player. Um, and I think that he has really taken a lot of pressure off of John Morant because before Desmond Bain, I think that the offense was very predictable. Obviously still John Morant dominates the ball a lot, but you can't send as much help to John Morant. You can't quite smother him as much as you could before because now you have to deal with Desmond Bain you can't leave that man open. He's averaging 17.5 points per game. And if you look at just what he's done recently, his production in the last 10, he's averaging 21.6 points per game. And he has been extremely efficient on very high volume. The guy is shooting 87% from the free throw line right now. He's shooting 42.7% from three-point range and 46% overall. I mean. This guy right now, just based on what he's doing right now, is the biggest steal in the 2020 draft, probably. Round one, pick 30. Boston has got to be kicking themselves for letting this guy go. He's doing all this in his second year. I mean, he blew up. This guy's actually someone that you got to be talking about now, I think, as a potential cornerstone piece with Ja. And John Moran obviously has taken a leap in his own right. I think that if you're just looking at that, you add Jaron Jackson, you add Dylan Brooks, this team has depth. They have length. They're really long. Um, they obviously can defend pretty well. Steven Adams brings a really nice interior presence, toughness. They're not scared of anybody. And if you notice too, whenever they play really good teams, they're not like some of these other teams that, they have good records, and what they do is they're beating up on lesser competition. This is one of those teams that they're hungry, and when they play another good team, they want to give it their best. John Moran is a player that elevates his play when he's playing premier competition because he wants to basically show that he is at that level because he feels like he hasn't been really given that consideration. I think that everyone can say that he's an all-star level guy, but John Moran feels like he is a superstar talent. And I think that every time that he plays a superstar talent, he sees it as an opportunity to prove to everyone that he is right there too. So I think definitely in, on any given series, especially given um, how much injuries and protocols have come into effect this season, 
And given how much depth this team has, that plays in their favor a lot. So I'm not going to call them a favorite to win it, but I think that they play against the Warriors, they play against the Suns, the Jazz, any of the best teams in the West. I don't think that you could count the Memphis Grizzlies out in less than six games in any of those series. So they're definitely a team to watch and a team to be taken seriously. Yeah, no, not and especially if they stay in the top three or four of the standings, I think that they have a great chance to beat the Mavericks, the Nuggets, and for sure anybody of the play in between the two LA teams, Timberwolves or the Portland Trailblazers. So I think as long as they don't have a first round matchup against the other top three teams in the West, the Suns, Warriors, and Jazz, then I think they have a good chance to build up some confidence, get a first round uh like easy in uh, and then beat somebody potentially to get to get into the Western Conference Finals. Yeah, and you know that John Morant, he loves the bright lights. This is a guy that, I mean, if you gave him Luka Doncic in a first-round matchup, I think his eyes would get so wide. And I'm not saying that Luka Doncic is not a competitor. I still think that probably Luka Doncic overall has the higher ceiling and is probably the better player right now. Um, but, I mean, John Morant, I think that he has more of that killer instinct where in a matchup against Luka, he would be the one that would be more excited for it to go in there and show everybody up. So what he's been able to do lately, it's been really impressive. If you're looking at John Morant this season, where would you place him among the best point guards in the NBA? I mean, I, I think – we, we talked about it last week because Desmond Bain actually had said that he puts him in the conversation of the best point guard right now. And I think it's hard to ignore what Steph has done this season. Also, Trey Young has had a very efficient season and has been playing well, although the Hawks aren't doing well themselves. So I would put him there in the three to five position for this, this season and with the potential for to end up being the number two point guard this season. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. If we're just obviously, it's hard to ignore a guy like Damian Lillard's resume and what he's been able to do. I think that the highest peak that Lillard has achieved in his career is still at a higher level than where John Morant currently is today. That's right, but just this season. Right, because just like this season. Kyrie Irving is one of the wizards of the game and could right. be the top point guard, but he hasn't played all season. Exactly. So if we're going on just this season alone, I got to give him the number two spot in my book. Cause the only guy that I would say is definitely having a better year for sure. And it's not even like a hundred percent is Stephen Curry, because as much as Stephen Curry, obviously um, is propelled by the fact that he has one of the top two teams in the league at any given time and has obviously largely been responsible for a team that everyone at the beginning did not expect to have this much success, being able to integrate all these new pieces, having all these young guys develop, having Clay Thompson still gone until just now and been able to not even miss a step. I think that all that is a testament to Curry, obviously, but Curry's lack of efficiency in terms of finishing everywhere else outside of three-point range really does catapult Morant into that conversation because Morant does have better efficiency overall. He's shooting 49% from the field. That can't be ignored. 
And it's not like, you know, even though Stephen Curry is giving you great volume on three-point range, he's not shooting it at that much higher of a percentage than Morant is. As a matter of fact, on some, it depends when you check, Morant may be higher on percentage than Curry is. He's shooting 30, uh, 37.9% right now. So I'd have to give Morant second best. And I think that, honestly, if I'm looking at it fairly, I would say that the John Morant that I'm seeing today would probably be a better player than peak Derrick Rose, if I'm being completely honest with you. So I don't feel bad about putting him number two right now. Well, continue to watch Memphis tear it up. But on to our last segment, what's the verdict? I will ask you a series of questions and you will plead whether it is innocent or guilty for the situation or person. To start, Giannis has recently closed in on the MVP race, but recently said that he feels KD is the best player and that he himself is just trying to get better. Is Giannis guilty of lacking confidence or is he just stating facts? I think that honestly, Giannis is just doing this as a front to the media. I think that Giannis is a very competitive guy. This is the same guy that we're talking about that when LeBron James did his usual thing that he does where he invites like a young up and coming star that's establishing himself as a really big player in the league. He has many times in the past offered players like this an opportunity to go and practice with him in the off season. Pretty much every time the players say yes, because obviously it's kind of tough to turn that down, but Giannis Antetokounmpo says no because he doesn't feel like he wants to learn from LeBron. There's not really anything for him to admire. He wants to um, be the best player that he can be. He's not trying to model his game after anyone or learn from anyone else. He's fully confident that he can take his game to where he needs to go his own way. He's been very confident about doing everything his own way. Think about the confidence in his decisions. A guy like LeBron James, who many people have said for many years is the best player in the league, obviously is a very confident guy talks a very big game just last game against the Grizzlies that they played he was shouting out I'm a mother problem um you know saying all this stuff I'm the best in the world he's gone as far as to say in interviews talks a big game Giannis is confident in a different way he doesn't really say it all the time but he shows you in his decisions for example in his free agency if he wasn't confident in his own abilities to win a championship he could have easily left and probably no one would have criticized him to the degree that they criticized LeBron or Durant because he could have gone to a team like the Miami Heat or a bunch of other teams that were courting him that weren't considered necessarily favorites, but were probably better rosters than what he had with the Bucks. And he could have definitely gone to any of those teams, gotten with another established star player, gotten some more help, and probably given himself better odds. But he doubled down trusted that he was enough with the pieces that he had over there in Milwaukee to win it all. And he chose to bet on himself and stay. And I think that that speaks a lot to his confidence. So I think of anything, Giannis is guilty of trying to appear like a, like a very humble guy to the media, because I don't think that truly in his mind that he truly believes that Durant is better than him. I know that many of people would think that Durant is better than him, I mean, I would probably still agree that Durant is the better overall player than Giannis is, but I have a hard time believing that Giannis, a guy who's won the MVP award himself, finals MVP, coming fresh off a championship, he's playing, playing great this season too in the MVP race again. I don't think that in his mind he thinks that. 
especially when he has gotten the best of Durant on several occasions, um, just most recently in this last season's playoffs. So if anything, he's guilty of just trying to appear humble in front of the media. Yeah, I, I think Giannis is just a humble guy. So even if he thinks that he is the best at something, I don't think he's going to come out and say it. People have compared it before to Michael Jordan. He's like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. I'm not Michael Jordan. So I think that that's just who he is as a person. And regardless of whether he wins 10 MVPs, I don't think he's going to sit there and tout himself as the best. I think he's going to still say that somebody is better than him and that he has more to work on because I, I just think it's who he is at his core. Yeah, I have to agree with that. I mean, he's been consistent his whole career as presenting himself as a very humble, hardworking guy. It does seem genuine. It can be boring at times how predictable he's going to be in front of the microphone, but you got to give him his credit. The guy is true to his word. Yes, yes, he is. But let's talk about one of his former teammates now. DeMarcus Cousin was waived by the Bucks a day after posting a double-double since gone to the Nuggets. And Cousins had been relatively productive during his minutes with Milwaukee, but they cut him because they wanted to have an option of, quote, an open roster spot, end quote. Are the Bucks guilty of undervaluing their talent? I think that they are guilty of undervaluing their talent. And I think it's not just DeMarcus Cousins. I think that they have a tendency to do that in general. I'm actually surprised that Chris Middleton is still on the team right now based on the way that they tend to handle things. They get a guy who, and for example, Malcolm Brogdon, who wins you rookie of the year right now. I mean, ever since he's left, um, you know, the situation in the Bucks, he's done nothing but show that he's a solid player. And he's another guy that they let go. Um, they let go of Eric Bledsoe for a guy that honestly is probably only marginally better than Eric Bledsoe is. They did win a championship, so I guess you can say it's justified to some degree. But it always seems like whatever talent they have cooking up, they just seem to let it go. They just never really feel like it's worth keeping it. And I think that that's them just always looking towards the next thing, looking to what they're going to sign next. And it's tough because you're Milwaukee. Like, you're not really going to get a free agent to go there. So unless they have a trade in mind already that they want to have this flexibility for already available. And it's already something that's been working um, in the background. I don't really understand this move on their part because I think that what they were looking for with DeMarcus was someone to replace a little bit, what PJ Tucker was able to give um, when he was there. That was like some toughness, a little bit of a presence inside, you know, veteran leadership to some degree. So I think that these are things that DeMarcus Cousins was able to give to some degree and to just send him off, especially a day after he posted double-double, uh, has been relatively productive in his minutes. I thought that that was kind of just kind of like a slap in the face. But again, I mean, you can't keep DeMarcus down long. He's already found a, a new situation. So hopefully he can find um, a place where he finally finds a role where he can get back to playing basketball consistently. Yeah, and I, I don't really understand the, hey, let's just keep something open for flexibility. Like there, there's already so many hardship contracts going out nowadays. 
given the situation that teams are in, like, why are you going to give away a potentially good talent with everything that's currently going on? And also they would be on the hook for what, like a million bucks. I don't think they're pushing that hard into the, the like tax threshold that they couldn't potentially cut him if they needed to and open up a roster spot or trade him to a team that could take him in with a trade exception at the deadline for a second round pick that never conveys like there's, there's no reason really to, to cut him. Yeah, no, it's a decision that definitely is a head scratcher. He had seemingly formed uh, like a solid friendship with Giannis while he was there too. But again, I mean, he has been relatively productive in the minutes that he's been given. He's rebounding the ball solidly. Still a, a bit of a defensive liability, but he's somebody that can give you an offensive presence, can give you a little bit of offense, can rebound, and can eat space off the bench. So I'm sure he'll find a way to, to make an impact for the Nuggets, who seemingly are looking for depth to replace the imminent trade of Bol Bol now that it's, it's clear that he doesn't want to be there. It's clear that they're trying to move him. Question is um, what they're going to do with him now that he's not past his physical, but um, clearly a situation where he's going to be gone. And I'm sure there's going to be some type of need for DeMarcus Cousins with Michael Porter Jr. out the rest of the year, um, taking away from their front court depth. Yeah, well, on to our last one. Talk about the Knicks earlier, but Knicks fan booed uh, Julius Randle and the whole entire team. And Randle responded by giving them a thumbs down, which he later clarified was meant to be taken as uh, to shut the expletive up. And then he was fined 25000 for the use of that profane language and then later apologized for both the thumbs down and the use of the language. Is Randall guilty of letting his frustration get the best of him, or are Knicks fans just guilty of not being that great? I think that it's a little of both, but definitely Julius Randall is more guilty of letting his emotions get to him. I mean, this honestly, it's, it's funny from both sides because Knicks fans are booing as if they're like really disappointed, like, oh, you guys, you guys suck. Like you guys should be a lot better because they had one good year last year and Knicks fans got really excited about that. And they all kind of ran with it and we're like, we're going to be contenders now. Next season, we're going to be serious. We're going to be even better. And I guess that one season's promise of hope to see it evaporate right before their eyes only a season later is something that is very frustrating to see for Knicks fans. So they're letting the Knicks have it by booing them and letting their displeasure be felt. I mean, I can see how um, as a player, you're kind of look at, looking at this like we're on the same team. Like we're playing for you guys. You guys booing us is not going to help us play better. But from the Knicks fans' perspective, you paid money to go see this team play. You had expectations of seeing, you know, competitive basketball at a high level and then the Knicks give you a dud and the Knicks end up playing completely terrible and they you lose the game and you're you're tired of seeing the losses pile up especially after you had high expectations on the year so you boo but you know what like Charles Barkley said you can't get mad because at the end of the day the NBA is a game of entertainment and the players have to understand that the only reason why you're getting paid these multi-million dollar contracts and you're a player in this league and you have the status that you have 
is because people are willing to go pay to see you do this thing. And if the fans aren't happy and they're not entertained, they're in their right to boo. Yes, it is kind of messed up. Booing your own team probably isn't going to help them play better. And it's probably not going to be, you know, the thing that makes them win the games again. But they are in their right. They are the customer. The customer is always right. You don't want them to boo, play better. That's what Charles Barkley said. And I agree with him. I mean, that's how this deal works. You play bad, you get booed. You play good, you get cheers. It is what it is. You can't take it personal. And you definitely can't tell, especially New York fans, knowing how they get to shut the F up. Um, I mean, you had a chance too. Like after you gave them the thumbs down, you had time to process this event between that moment and the interview. And you still decide to double down and say, yeah, that meant shut the F up. At this point, I don't feel bad for you. Like, you're obviously not um, endearing yourself to the local Knicks fans. I hope that he lives somewhere a little secluded because God knows if the Knicks fans know where he lives, they're making his life impossible right now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's never a good look. I think that when you're playing in a market like New York, New York, regardless of how good or poorly they play, are, they're still the number one valued franchise because of the market that they play in and the, the history that's there. So you're definitely going to have some harsh critics and people who are coming at you, regardless of whether their expectations should be lower or not. I think Philly is probably uh, the toughest market to play in in any sport because of how raucous their fans can get. But they are just that passionate about their teams. And if you're not playing well, they will definitely let you know. So um, it's something you have to deal with. And I don't think the way that he went about it was the, the right way. Yeah, no, I don't feel bad for him. I think that he's frustrated, too, because his numbers have regressed in every way possible. He has gone from a guy who had a breakout all-star season with the Knicks in his second season, giving them 24 points per game um, and averaging really nice percentages, 81% from the free throw line, 41% from three, which was an unprecedented leap for him going from 27% his first season with them to 41 and then 45% from the field. He's now giving them a season where he's shooting his lowest field goal percentage his entire time in New York, shooting 41% overall. His three-point shooting has regressed more to what we know it to be, 31% three-point shooting, 76 from the free throw line, 19 points per game. So I think that it's just been a frustrating year in New York for everyone involved. Coming on the heels of him getting a $117 million extension, so he got a, a little comfortable <laughs> with that. You love to see players, you know, really stepped their production up after getting a big contract. This is a huge positive for the Knicks. Yeah. Well, with that, it's the end of our show. Like us and subscribe to us on all your favorite podcast players. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike, sir. Court is adjourned.